Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, The Reasonable Voice. My guest today is a dear friend, Bill Ruff. Bill Ruff is a freelance director, playwright, and actor. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I do sometimes, with his wife, Artist Jones, since 1985. He has directed for the Heritage Theatre Festival, the University of Virginia, Lexington's Lime Kiln Theatre, and elsewhere, and has worked with Live Arts since it was founded, which was about 25 years ago, Bill? I think it's a little over now. We had a 25th anniversary celebration a year or two back. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you on, that's for sure. Some of uh, Bill Ruff's more recent directing credits at the Live Arts Theater include Death of a Salesman, The Trial of the Catonsville Nine, Getting Near to Baby, All My Sons, and in a stunning turn on stage, the old man that opened August Osage County. Bill comes from, by the way, the educational side of theater training. For years, he was a high school drama teacher and became a co-founder of the American Alliance for Theater and Education. I think I'll jump right in there, Bill, for a moment. Tell me, what is the American Alliance for Theater and Education? Well, my wing of it was originally made up of secondary school teachers who teach teach theater within the curriculum of schools or lobbied for the teaching of theater in the curriculum of schools because it is such a good vehicle for, for teaching in mm-hmm. general, for teaching kids, letting them rehearse what they want to do with their lives, see how other people live, get a sample of writing and uh, literature. And it was a terrific way of teaching that involved getting the kids out of their seats and involved and caring about what they're doing. All three of our close area schools here in Charlottesville have curricular programs in theater, all outstanding. And uh, to see what the kids can do when they put on a show is absolutely stunning. 
Yes, I agree. I I haven't had the public education experience, that is, classroom experience that you have had. But the few times that I did, when I first came back, for instance, from New York City, I taught and directed theater in a school in McLean, Virginia. And uh-huh. it's just astounding. You're absolutely correct. Once you let the, the, a, a student know this isn't playtime <laughs> and you know your parents will think you're cute no matter what you do but we're, we're really going to do something here they <laughs> they turn in amazing performances that was always my experience they're always they're, they're eager for it they're oh eager, yes they're eager for it it's life yes exactly so what i really i guess i should confess i invited bill ruff to be my guest today because he is now directing the exonerated a play that exposes what it's like to be on death row for 30 years, that's 3 years, for a crime you did not commit. That's innocence versus injustice and corruption in America's penal system. I don't claim, and I don't claim for Bill either, that we are the greatest sources on all of the updates and information and in-depth disclosures and what is developing uh, in in our penal system but we most americans are at least aware of private prisons where it it isn't the state but it's uh, corporations making money off of the number of people they manage to keep in jail for the longest period of time arizona That's right. yeah lo- jump in eat somebody the more people that you have in your private jail the more support you get from all over the place in terms of money and uh, executives compete for high-paying jobs and so you open a system like that up into all kinds of possibilities for uh, corruption or keeping supplies away from prisoners or what have you it's not it's not regulatable if i can use that word if it exists to the extent that a, a federal prison would be state prisons have all their own rules and regulations that they abide by and it's not necessarily guaranteeing fair treatment for any prisoner never mind a prisoner who happens to be convicted of a crime that he didn't commit or she didn't commit mm. so and in 30 is not a, a fixed figure there's a there are people here in town and in Richmond who have been in jail for 40 years trying to prove themselves innocent and who finally got exonerated years and years later. Uh, there's, a, there's one character in this play that's in there, has been in there for 38 years. Wow. And, and are there appeals just denied year after year or, or uh, is it just a... Is it just uh, attorneys? Well, t- you tell us. How how is this not working for them? Year after year, they are denied any kind of hearing with the parole board, just because, or the parole board will meet and just rubber stamp it and say no, because you know they must have done it. They're here that long. They don't have that much time to consider new evidence or that sort of thing. Quite frequently, there there is new evidence that gets ignored. Nobody's going to take action on it unless some somebody from the outside comes in and says, "Hey, there are two organizations here in in Virginia, rather that uh, that do that for us: the Innocence Project, right over at the University of Virginia Law School, mm-hmm. and the Virginia 
what is it, the, the Virginians, Virginians for alternatives to the death penalty based out of Richmond, but they cover the whole state. And they quite often interfere. But unless you have something like that goes on, or or there's a jail snitch who finally admits that he did it shortly, uh, you know, many years later, mm. or he's been promised a reduced sentence if he if he, if he testifies against one of the uh, people who turn out to be innocent. So you get snitches lying. You get uh, victims who are innocent who plead out, which is one of the big problems, which means they they agree to a lesser sentence if they will admit to having committed the murder or whatever they've done. So instead of getting life imprisonment, we'll, we'll arrange for you to have only six years if you admit you've done it. Well, mm. that's fine. So then they get the six years in prison and then nobody listens to them anymore. Yes. And they got a convicted killer or, or whatever it is. Very warped system. It is indeed. And thank you for all of that. Maybe I should not have uh, put in a disclaimer that you, at least, were not necessarily an authority on the prison system, penal system. But well, um, that was. Hey, I've been doing a, a lot of reading and listening. There's some wonderful people uh, around here who, who take this this uh, task of theirs very very seriously. Uh, John Grisham, as you know, wrote a whole book about this, yes. and is very active in in the Innocence Project. And there are students over in law school uh, working on the Innocence Project, and they're getting people off. It's hard work, and sometimes it takes years. Mm. Not a small task. I mean, when I first came to this, I thought, okay, they don't make mistakes very often. They can't. They can't be that dumb that mm. they're <laughs> they're going to put an innocent man in jail and intending to do that. And I don't believe anybody does that, by the way. Mm -hmm. but it, to do that and unless there's uh, some obscure reason for them to. But I think that's rare. I think everybody's out there doing their job. And what we don't realize is the easiest way to do your job sometimes is just to get a conviction and move on. Mm. Wow. And, and once that happens, you're in, once you're in the system, as, as Mr. Grisham has said, and I heard in an interview the other day, it's easy to get an innocent man put in prison as hard as the dickens to get an innocent man out of prison yes tell us tell us a bit more about the innocence project vadp and and others that are partnering with you in in this uh in this endeavor well i'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about both of them one of them is virginians for alternatives to the death penalty mm-hmm their focus is to get people out of jail. It costs more to, to keep them in jail than almost anything else we could do to them, except execute them, which costs more than keeping them in jail. Mm. But basically their focus is on how do we get people out of jail who have other places to be, who are not going to be harm, doing any harm to anybody anymore, that have relatives ready to take them and vouch for them and so forth and so their their work is primarily based on prisoners of that sort not necessarily innocent but guilty maybe of a crime that they committed years and years and years ago old man for instance mm -hmm. uh, to get an old man out of prison uh, to to get him released to be with his relatives who will vouch for him or, or something like that, instead of costing the taxpayers an arm and a leg by keeping him in prison when he's perfectly harmless. Mm. 
and I know that they've been working on that that sort of thing uh, lately. Um, the other outfit, that's a statewide outfit, by yeah. the way, DP. They're also very good at uh, lending information to you because uh, I, I called them because I didn't know anything about this. I think mm-hmm. I'm alive. I'm like most people. I uh, I don't like the idea of the death penalty. I don't support it at all, but neither do I let it interfere with my day-to-day life very often, or at least neither did I. And I think that's typical of most of us. Yes. People are in prison. We think, okay, they probably deserved it, and uh, let's move on. But this is not a small problem. This is a big problem. I came at it thinking maybe once in a while they make a mistake. It turns out to be a question of thousands, thousands of people in the American prison system who are probably innocent. Okay. Well, I just, uh, I I mean, I hear you, and I know most of us probably, even though there's a lot of truth in in, uh, Shawshank Redemption and, and the Green Mile, there's just a lot more that we don't know, and as you say, we don't really uh, give it a lot of time in our, in our daily thinking. I mean, if, you're, if you've never been on trial, you've never been arrested, you've never been in jail, how often does one think about it? But we are getting a lot of uh, coverage from time to time in uh, our nightly news programs about such cases as what you've been describing, people getting out of prison after being in for decades. Does that give you, encourage you to think that maybe um, uh, things are uh, are getting better? Or what do you think? Are we on a plateau or what? It definitely gives me encouragement to think uh, because the more aware, more that happens, the more we become aware of it. The more we become aware of it, the less resistance we get from our legislators over in Richmond and beyond. so, for instance, they just uh, just last week was it, I think, or so very recently, uh, uh, the legislature actually passed the Senate passed mm-hmm. uh, banning banning the execution of mentally severely mentally ill. Yes, I don't understand what the resistance is to that. Why you would want to kill somebody who is so mentally ill and is in in prison? And talk him out of, or talk the lawyers, or lawyers talk them out of uh, putting them in a hospital. Instead, putting it in, putting them into a prison. Um, but, but so the Senate actually passed a new piece of legislation that uh, Virginia Senate that uh, would ban that sort of thing. And then when it went to the House, it's probably a lost cause because there's a representative or two in a legislator or two down there in the Virginia House that is um, um, firmly set or that who are firmly set against any kind of uh, mercy in that sense. There's a lot that goes on in the General Assembly in Richmond, Virginia. Um, yeah. We are a commonwealth for those that don't know, um, which is slightly different, but certainly well, there have been a lot of causes that die in one house or the other uh, over the years in the General Assembly in Virginia. I mean, the Equal Rights Amendment, for one, most recently. And as you say, that it seems the anything that... I mean, it's hard to believe in the 21st century. Let's just put it in those terms. 
it's hard to believe in the 21st century that people in government would say, no, I think we should execute mentally ill people. And, and you just, you have to think they're stuck in some kind of mindset back when we institutionalized the mentally insane because we didn't know any better. But now we know better and still we're doing it? What do you think? Well, I think you know, it goes goes two ways in a way. I mean, a few years ago, you remember we had this big movement of let's get these people out of prison mm-hmm. and close down the prison and put them out on the streets. Well, uh, if they're if they're not mentally able to handle being in society, there's not much surprise that some of them go awry. Yes. Uh, end up in a regular prison because the mental institutions have been closing down. So it's nobody has any idea what they're doing, basically, and and we don't know. None of us understand yet, apparently, uh, how to run prison programs that are effective, that uh, can can teach, that can reduce recidivism, that can accomplish basically what we want. Mm. European prisons do this. My granddaughter, as a matter of fact, is going to be studying in Norway, the Norwegian prison system and bring it back, uh, bring back what she learns in writing a paper for her class about uh, what we could do that makes more sense than what we do with locking up people, presuming that they're uh, guilty without doing the research to find out for sure. Gotcha. Okay. Well, good for her and for you and and uh, your bringing uh, the exonerated and your production of that to our attention. We're going to take a short break We are speaking to my Reasonable Voice guest, Bill Ruff, who is director, playwriter, and actor, and is currently directing The Exonerated, which will be a reading at the Live Arts Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Arguably, the film that launched Tom Cruise to stardom was Risky Business, the story of a young man finding his way with much hijinks along the way. Dope is an updated version of this story, in no way a copy, but surely sharing the same DNA. Geeky Malcolm Adekambi is one of the smart kids growing up in hardcore South Central L.A. Gang activity and drug use are pervasive around him, but his goals are high. Malcolm wants to be an achiever. Harvard is his dream. One fateful day, Malcolm is corralled by the leader of a drug gang. This tough thinks himself smart and challenges Malcolm in wordplay. Impressed, he invites Malcolm to his party. Malcolm knows better, but attends to meet that unattainable girl of his dreams. From there, his life spins wildly and dangerously out of control. How will he handle his Harvard alumni interview? And what will he write for his essay? Dope is fresh in its perspective, hilarious at times and heartfelt in others. Danger, romance, crime, and sex in an adventure story that ends with a punch of undeniable reality. We film lovers live for the find of those special films. This one is a standout. Dope, not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices Talk Radio Program. My guest today, Bill Ruff, director, playwright, and actor, who is currently involved in directing a play entitled The Exonerated. And we've been talking about some of the issues in our prison system. A lot is going on in the Commonwealth of Virginia and around the country, but in 
but Bill Ruff lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, so that's why we're talking Commonwealth of Virginia. There are private prisons around the country. Arizona comes to mind in particular that where corporations are making money off of how many people they can keep in prison. But Bill Ruff's play, uh, The Exonerated, that he is directing, is really about innocent people spending time on death row and how difficult it is to get them out of prison. I presume that DNA is a large part of that, Bill. Is, is that what is at issue, or is that their best hope? Yes, DNA is a large part of it because the science of working with DNA has made so much progress in the last 10 years or so. It becomes very clear that there's irrefutable evidence that somebody is innocent and somebody else isn't. A lot of times they've been convicted on the basis of a jailhouse snitch and the the snitch changes his mind and, and admits that he did it and the other guy didn't. Mm. Uh, so you get that sort of thing. So yes, there there's there's a lot of things that can go on. They can discover that somebody lied. That will um, provide evidence that the that the prisoner is an, an innocent person. Even then, it takes a while. An exonerated person, after a while, it still takes a while to get them through all the paperwork to get them out of prison, and which is something I don't really understand. And, you know, we don't get that side of the story so much, even in some of the finest movies made about corruption and the, let's say, the flaws in our penal system. But that is, you can be proven innocent, then they don't just give you a suit and you get to leave that day. There's a a whole process of paperwork and, you know, that, that goes on that still delays what's happening. The play deals with that to a certain extent. This is a play that was written in 2002 by two two playwrights, and they had been going around the country interviewing people who had gotten out of prison on the basis of, of, of their innocence, mm-hmm. proof of their innocence. And so they put this together. The play is structured as basically testimony by six men and women and it uses their own language. It's This is an authentic piece of theater in both ways. Mm-hmm. It's a language. It, they're true stories. They use the names, in most cases, their own names. And they're able to be fairly accurate about what they've been through and why we should all of a sudden be paying attention to it. I saw this back in 2002, and, and I wasn't involved at all in, in in either of these programs that deal with innocent people in jail. I hadn't thought that much about it, but it was a mind-grabbing event for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it set up as a it's set up as a reading, and it is a reading in a sense. It's not a reading in the sense of you know ten people are going to stand behind music stands. We're not going to use music stands. I hope we're going to have a lot of eye-to-eye contact, and ours is. Ours is a teaching role as well as an entertaining role. Mm-hmm. The emotional content is there, say, entertaining in its widest sense. I mean, these are tragic circumstances, but what are you going to do when you get caught in, in, in this kind of a mess? Mm-hmm. Uh, find a way to laugh a little bit and live through it. So there are parts of this that are very funny, ironically, and parts of it that are very tragic. And, but anyway, it's basically six testimonials, 
spoken by these people and some other scenes sort of thrown in as part of the storytelling process. That's the structure of it. Mm -hmm. And it's quite quite mind-bending. And we are talking, of course, about the play The Exonerated, which Bill Ruff is directing. Bill, why now? What is there? Is the timing of this? Is there a, a reason for that? It's not just another play I know to you. It isn't because you know what live arts is. It has a tradition of of encouraging would be directors to submit lists of plays that they would be interested in directing. You mentioned earlier, uh, Death of a Salesman has been on my list for years and years, and I finally got to do it. But this is another one that's on my list for years and years that I really wanted to do just because it had grabbed me so strongly when I saw it. And and I wanted to bring that that kind of experience to, to Charlottesville. So, uh, and then it turned out, and I've been told, you know, we've got other things to do. We can't do that. We can't do that. Well, they have a structure at Live Arts now. Mm. It's a special structure where we can do plays that aren't fully staged. They're not in the theaters necessarily. And, uh, and sometimes they're readings. Sometimes they're experimental things. Sometimes they're really interesting plays that don't fit within the season. But it, it encourages us directors and others to take chances to be creative, to do something we might not otherwise get to do. Mm. This was on that list for me for years and years and years. So this is a foundry production. It's up in the fourth floor of Live Arts. It's not on a stage. It's in a big room where we all leave the lights on and share the experience together equally. And we usually follow it up by discussions and uh, comments, Terry, after the play is over, and will this time, certainly. So it's a foundry production. It is a reading. We are not behind music stands, but the full voice acting spectrum will be there. It will be a very active, authentic, full production in the sense of actor motivation and that sort of thing. Hmm. I'm very excited about it. I have a terrific cast. I was just going to ask you, although Charlottesville is a comparatively small town, it is full of theater and great restaurants and culture and, of course, history. Tell us about the cast that you have. A number of them I know and have worked with, but did you say it's a 10-member cast? 10-member cast, yes. And some of the best in Charlottesville. It's hard to find actors in this town, especially at certain times of year when mm-hmm. there are two or three other plays going on at the same time. Yes. And uh, but, but I found them. You know, you pull strings, you ask for the favors, and and they came. So, for instance, I have Richard and Jude Warner. Yes. Richard Warner and, and his wife, Jude. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, Ike Anderson, who just got through directing uh, a piece at Live Arts. And uh, Denise Stewart. Denise Stewart, who's been around for a while, who's done superb work, and including making me laugh myself silly with something that that was uh, about Barbie dolls (laughs) (laughs) called Dirty Barbie and it was a great show and she's become quite a playwright since then and acts acts, uh, a lot for Heritage and and for Live Arts Mm -hmm. Um, and that's just an example I mean I've got uh, Randy Clark uh, and Randy Clark you've worked with Randy I think yes yes uh, a, a new a newcomer of a young fellow out of 
Upwick High School is he in um, Josh who's who's one of the finest actors up at what's the one up by Kale Monticello High School yeah Monticello yeah so yeah and And, 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 he's terrific and Clinton Johnston I've directed in a number of things he's he's quite amazing Clinton uh, is a a UVA graduate in the directing department and uh, and I've known him for years and years and he's in it so so sometimes you have to twist arms and sometimes people (laughs) say oh is this what it's about Uh, (laughs) yeah I want to do this yeah well you've pulled together quite a cast I mean Leslie Scott Jones and Thomas Burke and yeah. Uh, you know, um, I hope we haven't left out anyone. Matt, what about Matt? Matt, uh, Matt's a newcomer. He's on the board. He was in Death of a Salesman for me and did a great job. So I just called him back and he said, sure, let's do it. It's an interesting um, casting system a great deal of the time in Charlottesville because, again, there are so many theaters. They're all running at the same time, but the pool of actors is a lot smaller than, say, D.C. or Philadelphia or New York, and so you're competing constantly. But I think it says a lot for directors like you, Bill Ruff, and and Boomy Peterson, who we both know, that you can pick up a phone and say, hey, I've got this play. Will you come do it for me? And and the best best of the best come. I mean, that has to say a lot. Not only make you feel good about yourself, but it, it makes a statement about what people think about your talent, I think. Well, I don't know about that, but it certainly makes a statement. Of, uh, well, it does, I guess, but because people like to work with me and I like to work with them. It's very exciting, the whole process of directing for me, and I've been doing it all my life, basically. So it's fun, and they're good people, and when we, when we get on a good project together like this and we all pull together, they don't see that much of me this time in a reading. Uh-huh. I've set them pretty much loose for the last uh, month or so with a script, asking them to develop motivations and to develop subtext and all of that, which normally you would do intensively at the beginning of a rehearsal with a director. Mm -hmm. And this time, because it's a reading, I wanted them to discover in their characters what their motivations were and what they were really feeling behind some of the words that they're saying from the script. So it's not just somebody else's being that's up there, but they get to get these characters, these true life characters, incorporated inside themselves. And it's quite a wonderful thing to watch with the talented kind that we've got there. Back in the last couple of weeks, then we'll get together as a group and do whatever we need to do to, to blend it together and block it and that sort of thing. Tell us a bit about live arts. I mean, we, we know it's been around for more than a quarter of a century. We mentioned that already, but where is it physically located and what are the you know, the schedule of of the performances, dates, times, do we need tickets, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Well, it's located, it's easy to find. It's down on the corner of Water Street and 2nd Street. And it's been there for, golly, I don't know how long that building has been there. It's a very unusual thing for a community theater to have its own own building and its own stages. It's Mm -hmm. got two things in it. Uh, and we managed to use every corner of the building for yes. productions of some kind or another or rehearsals. Even ran out of that and occupy a space called uh, X that's uh, <laughs> an extra rehearsal room across town that we use. And there are a lot of people that have supported us through through the years. Obviously, this has cost money. 
you don't make all the money back from box office. In this case, we're not basically charging anything. Mm. There's, a, there's, a, there's a process called uh, pay what you wish or pay what you can. Mm -hmm. You come to the door. If, uh, if you can afford this and that, uh, then that's what you pay. And, and the dates, March the, uh, 29th, 30, 31st times? 31st, that's right. Uh, 29th and 30th, Friday and Saturday night of March. Friday and Saturday night at 7 o'clock. We have an additional performance, a third performance on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And in all cases, I would recommend that you not just go to the door and look for a ticket. You'll run into a huge crowd and possibly get a production of a performance that's sold out. So starting around the 17th, 18th of March, so 10 days roughly before we go on, you can dial up livearts.org online and actually make a reservation this time. So, And again, the admission to the play is uh, pay what you wish. Uh, and I strongly recommend going going online to uh, LiveArts, www.livearts.org. But we're not on the site yet. It's too early. Okay. So, so around the middle of March, around the 17th or 18th, I would say, get online and go do that. Make, make, make the reservation. You'll have a place to sit. And uh, don't have to uh, go through all that rigmarole at the door trying to figure <laughs> it out. Ask seat go just before you get there. Bill, we're going to have to go soon, but I wonder with, you know, beyond the artistic and creative art accomplishments in which you've been involved, there's some community-oriented goals here for community awareness. I think you've made that clear. What sort of, um, what, what's the takeaway you want for us, this awareness of, awareness of what? What do you want us to take away from this conversation today beyond the, the theater production that you're directing of the exonerated live arts? I know for you there's more to it than that. Tell us, Mr. I, Educator. When I do any play, what I basically want is for people to care, hmm. people, to, people to learn something that they will walk out of a production being somehow changed major way maybe minor way maybe but somehow different feeling different about being human and caring about our fellow human play uh, fellow human beings and the plights that they find themselves in and to be more empathetic i think that's why theater exists and that's certainly why i got hooked on theater when i was still in high school mm. And it is a community awareness thing I'm looking for. We have actually, with the cooperation of the Innocence Project, we will have in our audience all three times two people who have actually been through the process of going to prison for a crime they didn't commit and then being exonerated. Mm. So this is not fiction. This is going on all around us. And it's going on all around us, whether we know it or not, with our blessing. Yes. That's All right, fine. Bill Ruff, playwright, director, actor, directing The Exonerated, which will be read at Live Art Theater, downtown Charlottesville, Virginia, Friday and Saturday, March 29th and 30th at 7 p.m., and Sunday, March 31st at 3 p.m. So, Bill, give us the website one more time and before we go. www.livearts, all one word, dot org. 
Okay. Thank you so much, dear friend and colleague, Bill Ruff, for being on The Reasonable Voices. Today we wish you and Live Arts and the cast of Exonerated all the very best. Okay? Thank you, Marcello. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Welcome to the Andy Fell Minute. In history class, most of us learned that the Civil War ended the institution of slavery in America. The 13th Amendment declared that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude should be legal in the land, except as a punishment for crime. It is this conspicuous loophole that award-winning director Ava DuVernay explores in her blistering documentary, 13th. Through a series of interviews with academics, businessmen, and politicians from both sides of the aisle, along with horrific historical photographs and modern video footage, 13th makes the case that slavery never disappeared in America. It only changed form. First with the Jim Crow laws of the South, then in the 80s as the war on drugs, and now with the disproportionate mass incarceration of black Americans. The subject matter is difficult, but DuVernay has edited the film so as to make it impossible to turn away. There are no moments of silence, no places to catch your breath. Hip-hop lyrics punctuate the film's segments, relentless in their plea for justice. If ever a film deserved to become required viewing across America, it would be 13th. Watch it tonight. 13th. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Are we prepared for what will be when Trump Pence is done? If we weren't fixated on the lowest, now highly elevated, indeed lauded, unscrupulous wannabe lords and ladies skilled primarily in the art of deception, so morally bankrupt, they swamp the exceptionalism that could be America. We disavow all anti-freedom caucuses camouflaging liberty from sea to shining sea. Who among us are preparing for what will be after Trump-Pence era is over? Will we, like our 116th House of Representatives, to a certain extent, bleach out Mitch McConnell's and Paul Ryan's 115th contempt of Constitution? Or will we have been normalized into an apathetic nemesis of human decency? In this corner, Mark Meadows, champion of Trumped GOP, trying to avoid insurance query knockout by challenger Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, when in truth, like us, both are co-joined pillars book-ending American updates and We the People Potential. The real land of the free and home of the brave question is, was Cohen's congressional confession a much-needed exceptional myth-buster, or our new This Is Us? Rarely, however, have even foxy hands of conservative cons, divorced from subtlety and originality, so shamed Lincoln's GOP and damned any light-upon-a-hill pretense. However, truth is, liberal conscience and conservative shame have too often colluded with the moneyed dens of iniquity and bigotry. So, are we the foreshadowing of Keith Bishop's wild boar, herded by money masters, preaching to a choir for which testosterone, for a mythical past, transforms both audience and performers into worshippers, salivating at a gold-plated calf of republic destruction? 
Have American good Samaritan tendencies already been usurped by the excrement of supremacists of lust for power? Blinded by understandable patriotic fervor following their 1941-9-11, our greatest generation can't be blamed for being the nuts and bolts of a profit-making war machine. However, were Korean police action and presidential Vietnam and Iraq lies so dazzling we're still too dazed to differentiate between socialism and communism or recognize what we elected was state-sponsored child abuse, religious vice president hypocrisy, and military rape. To see, it's not just Trump bull hockey. If loss of blood, limbs, mental health, and life to war mongrels dollar sign eyes hasn't yet convinced us how easily one powerful older man, whether an industrial robber baron in search of glory, a Kaiser ensconcing empire, a trumped presidency warped by treason and towering greed, or Wall Street bankers for whom enough is never enough, employing repetitious lies, the ultimate weapon of mass hysteria, discrimination, and destruction inspiring chanting clones to clamor to touch the underbelly of where is the bottom herded in a rage by a tyrant's identification of the most conveniently sellable enemy of the people then we're no more perceptive than the day after characters oblivious to background tv warnings of a nuclear attack True patriotism is the ultimate expression of love thy neighbor as thyself, not the droppings of false prophets deceiving the rowdy by proclaiming in vociferous disrespect of old glory that they alone have accomplished amazing things better and greater than anyone ever before. In 2019-2020, it is essential that together we create our post-Trump pence because we're all going to need more than a bit of marvelous to survive and thrive after wading through such a wasteland of self-deception. So let's fix our Constitution, which currently neither ratifies the Equal Rights Amendment nor recognizes women as a protected class. And before believing the white knit on a red cap, consider this. Only in 2019 have some states managed to outlaw the practice of executing the mentally ill. And it is estimated that 9% of prisoners on death rows in U.S. prisons are innocent. Beware, time's infinite relativity is circling around to warn us. The Trump administration is a merciless mercer tool, a rerun retooled for how to destroy a republic of, by, and for the people. Pity is we needed a Reich encore to, by example, reteach us, no matter how big the lie, repeat it often enough and the masses will regard it as truth. The second coming of a buzz wind drip is a forked tongue dawn in search of other people's money, spinning a tale that confirms when fascism comes to America it will be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. If we still cannot perceive that the Trump family and Trump organization are a 1930 throwback, then at least consider aided and abetted by Russian hacks, the same mindset that annihilated millions 76 years ago has successfully invaded our electoral process and minority neighborhoods. So it's suicidal to imagine recycling we didn't know. Following our assassinating 60s, it has, arguably, been the nature of conservatives to deny and for liberals to nurture, and now the attorney-turned-felon has under oath testified if Trump loses 2020 election, there will never be a peaceful transition of power.
So I ask you, shall we not be about the business of saving our democratic republic because the day after America defeats Trump Pence may be too late? Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.